0: Dear Lord Baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of dominoes, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your Baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. and It smells terrible and no, the dogs are always mm. bothering with it. Mm. Dear tiny infant Jesus. We... Hey,
1: um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby.
0: Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. <sighs> Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers, with your tiny little fat, bald-up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. Dear 8-pound, 6-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet. Mm. Thank you for all your power and your grace,
1: dear baby God. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Let's dig in.
1: Been waiting about eight years to show that one. <laughs> People prefer, though, the Christmas Jesus. Weighing in, 8-pound, 6-ounce, Jesus is small and manageable. He dishes out the warmth of hope without being able to utter adult words that may disturb, you know, Christmas brunches. Baby Jesus doesn't ask us to live more responsibly or look out for others. He expects very little of us except to be merry and celebrate. We can even put him to bed early so the adults can drink more eggnog. As I say this, I'm I'm neither trying to set up an arbitrary caricature nor pigeonhole us because the preference for baby Jesus goes well beyond modern materialism, in December. Last week, I came across an account actually, and doing a little research of this uh, Jesuit missionary, uh, Matteo Ricci, who went to China in the 16th century. He brought along pieces of art to demonstrate the gospel, who Jesus is, because he didn't know <laughs> Mandarin. So he brings these art pieces along, and the Chinese he encountered loved, and he even bought, acquired quickly portraits of Mary and the Christ child. But, when Ricci busted out portraits of Jesus' passion, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his audience was totally horrified. They clamored only for the pictures of the virgin and her son because those portraits were comforting to the life they were already living. Didn't make them change, didn't force them to reassess who they are and who their God is. So who wouldn't prefer baby Jesus? It's a great trivia question, by the way, to use at parties. What do you have in common with the 16th century Chinese? You both prefer nativity scenes in your home to the crucifixion scenes. Guessing we all do. And part of my job this Christmas season is to bring your attention to manger danger. We can fall so in love with those nativity scenes. There is a manger danger to it all. The danger of relating to a baby God, weak, manageable, confined to his manger, asks nothing of me, yet still comes with me wherever I go when I ask him. Turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, that's going to be on page 728. If you want to use one of these Bibles we have in these chair pockets here or at the end of the aisles, you'll want to have a Bible, we'll be reading God's Word, so... Jesus did grow up, get bigger, and yes, grew a healthy man-beard. As he grew, his life makes us feel increasingly uncomfortable because he, he lives the life of love, of compassion, of selflessness that each of us are supposed to live, but we just can't seem to do it. He doesn't do this, Jesus, to show off. He doesn't do it to make us feel bad about ourselves. Neither is it God's. Man, I told you so. right? Remember the Ten Commandments? Here's somebody living it out that I sent to earth. See? It can be done. It's not that. Jesus grows up and lives out the perfect life we could not so that he could die the death we deserve. Therefore, thereby opening the possibility that anyone could be forgiven and draw near to God through faith in Jesus. Anyone. So he shares with us this good news. He lives it out through his life and he dies in our place like he said he would. And then this happens. Mark chapter 15. We'll start actually in verse 40. There were also women looking on at the crucifixion from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him. They ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with Jesus to Jerusalem. Skip down with me, if you would, to verse 45. When Pilate learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking Jesus down... "'wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb "'that had been cut out of the rock. "'And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. "'Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph "'saw where Jesus was laid. "'When the Sabbath was past, "'Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome "'brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. "'And very early on the first day of the week "'when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb.' Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray together. King Jesus, uh, the twelve are nowhere to be found. Those who are present at the tomb love you and hope in you and yet are still unbelieving towards a big and risen Savior. The same Bible goes on, your word, to summarize what you did for us. You emptied yourself, being born in the likeness of men. You humbled yourself in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, The Father breathed life back into you and exalted you, bestowing upon you the name that is above every name is now King of this universe. Please, Jesus, if that is true, if you are risen, if you are alive, if that's true, that means you are alive to open our eyes. and You're alive to help us see that truth this morning. Please do. Amen. So, The first and most obvious thing I think that we should work at here is to consider together a big big and risen Jesus. Baby Jesus, good teacher Jesus, that's kind of one thing, isn't it? But a big Jesus, voluntarily crucified, risen from the dead, walking out of his tomb, that's a lot to take in. And Mark refuses to push us. All right, so first, this, is, this whole thing, this big Jesus crucified, risen from the dead, walking out of his tomb, eventually ascending into heaven, flying up to the clouds, there's a lot to take in. The women in our story, all right, who are meant to kind of think on, put ourselves in their shoes, they offer this ambivalent, even kind of schizophrenic final response to Jesus, don't they? At one moment, they show that they love, they demonstrate great fealty to Jesus, great faithfulness, even certainly in his life, providing for him, ministering to him, and even in his death, right? They keep spending, they keep showing up, they keep seeking, though their Savior is dead. Then the angel gives them the best news yet about Jesus. He's not here, he's risen at which they went out and fled from the tomb, trembling. Being commanded to say something to the disciple, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's kind of a, so you have this, on the one hand, this, this sort of faith response, this love. Even, even though our Savior's dead, we, 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 think some, we still have some hope. But then when they get the best news yet about Jesus, terror, trembling. Don't say anything to anyone. And fleeing, the word Mark chooses for fleeing the tomb is reserved only for sheer terror. During his time, it was used of someone fleeing from a wild animal. However, in some ways, it's the most authentic human response one could imagine. One reason Mark's account about Jesus is so trustworthy: if you're going to make up a story about God who becomes a man who predicts he'll die and then rise from death, you make his resurrection such a production that people's jaws would drop, they'd get on their hands and knees, and immediately just be like, whoa, we worship you. It'd be that kind of production. Instead, we get a response that's indicative of both God on the scene on the one hand, they keep spinning on, showing up for, seeking a dead man, but also humanity on the scene. Their faith is fickle, just like we're fickle. We can be fickle, can't we? Consider, for instance, your experience with churches, which is a good example since church is the left-behind embodiment of Christ, right? The body of Christ. It's his footprint that he's left behind to demonstrate the love and compassion and self-sacrifice that he showed to us. Think about your experience with churches, maybe your history. And maybe this describes you, at least maybe at some point, if not now. You hear this message About grace. God's activated, God has activated his love through this undeserved gift that we only have to believe in to receive Jesus. And we experience this kind of grace, this undeserved love activated in others, in the church. Right? And you start to, to keep coming to church, and there becomes this vibrancy to your faith, and you ask how you can serve in the church, and you grow as the Bible comes alive in your life. Man, things are humming along for you. And then, though, you read something that's hard to digest. You get a, a teaching on a Sunday morning that, that just sounds to you a bit extreme, a bit too radical. Or, you know, a, a, the worship leader asks the people to do something kind of uncomfortable. Or strange. A story that's shared that morning. It's a little too close to home. Someone says something a little too intimate, maybe in your community group. Or perhaps uh, an old sort of non-church friend says, hey man, you know, you, i got to say, you've changed. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, let me, just, let me just back off. And all of a sudden you're fleeing from church. Maybe even from your walk with Jesus. Mark recognizes in these women something of an authentic, normal response. The experience of the divine. So, Mark refuses to push or sort of corner us into a decision. This isn't the Crusades. This isn't the Inquisition. Mark's not going to force you to believe in Jesus. He doesn't offer us the same kind of resolution to the story that the other Gospel writers offer us. Right? Matthew, Luke, John. Think about this for a moment. Like, so, for instance, Matthew gives us rev- resolution in his gospel, an ending that kind of satisfies us. The women depart first with fear in Matthew's gospel, but then with great joy, they run to tell the disciples. On their way to tell the disciples, they meet Jesus, whom they immediately bow down and worship. Jesus meets with his disciples, gives them marching orders, and you're like, "Yes!" At the end of Matthew's gospel, Luke likewise gives us resolution. The women. Begin to remember Jesus' own words about his resurrection. Then he appears multiple times to his disciples. He eats with them. Then he conducts a study review of the Old Testament with them. And then promises them the Holy Spirit. That's pretty complete. And I figure out what the Old Testament's all about. Nice. Then you get John. and John's Gospel, such a climax, a crescendo, resolution. You get, he appears to to Mary Magdalene personally. She thinks he's a gardener. He reappears later to all the disciples to enjoy a morning campfire on the beach with them. And finally, he restores Peter, doesn't he? Very clearly. But Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? He restores him. Mark leaves us completely on the edge. Even on a kind of a down note. It's like this great symphony that finally gets to the top and it's like, It made the early church feel so this this ending to Mark's gospel here made the early church feel so uncomfortable that after a generation or two had passed after Mark wrote it, they added what they felt was a more satisfying conclusion, and that's what we get here in verses nine nine through twenty. That's why you see at every note, in your Bible you'll see some of the earliest manuscripts do not include. You'll see it in caps, all caps. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter sixteen verses nine through twenty, because we're ninety nine percent sure. That this is not what Mark wrote. This is an addition later to the Gospel of Mark. We're actually going to talk about that a little bit next week and how you can still trust the Bible that you have. But but I think that's why. Because no one was comfortable with how Mark ended this. Mark, we need some healings. We need talk of the Great Commission. We need some way, better way for this to end. But Mark, the Holy Spirit through Mark is satisfied with the conclusion we have here in verse 8. I think that's because it's a way of saying, I've given you all the evidence you need to make a choice about Jesus. And I don't need to shove anything extra down your throat. Mark's presented a God-made flesh who cares more about people than rules, who loves to build community, who teaches with this authority that no one has ever seen before, even the greatest teachers in the world. He's patient with those who fail. He heals and casts out with power when it helps the humble who know they need help. He lets his followers figure out who he is on their own. He repeatedly communicates his rescue plan, which involves his crucifixion and resurrection. And then he carries it out like he said he would. And he's brutally honest the whole way through. Mark gives details that embarrass even himself. He is probably the guy who flees naked from the scene when Jesus is arrested. And he includes that about himself. Honesty, a full picture of a God who loves, who cares, who predicts what he's going to do to save you, and then he does it. What more do you need? Mark, I think, ends his gospel, the best way I know how to explain it is like this. It's a little bit like one of these choose-your-own-adventure books. Any of you guys read these when you were kids? Raise your hand so I get some sort of idea. If you wrote a choose-your-own-adventure book, for those of you who have not, I'll explain it briefly here. Everyone reads the first part of the story. For instance, this is Lost on the Amazon. Uh, Everyone reads the first part of the story. Then you have to start making decisions with the main characters of the story. Based on the evidence at hand, you make the wisest decision, wisest choice possible to stay alive. And if you turn to page 11, you die from piranhas. Otherwise, you get to keep going on in the book. It's very sad. Imagine eight-year-olds reading this. And so, in Lost on the Amazon, I chose poorly and ended up a slave to the Kuatrieri tribe. All right? In fact, that's about three of the bad endings apparently are becoming a slave to the Kuatrieri tribe. Um, but there are other good choices too, other happy endings. One included you find your colleagues and you enjoy a feast with them. Another one included finding your colleagues and, you know, enjoying a feast with them. And you get a girlfriend. I may have been reading the incorrectly though. So, <laughs> but it's something like that. Happy endings. Mark... And his gospel puts us right there with these three female witnesses who followed the story of Jesus, who followed Jesus the whole way through, just like we have, and leaves us with how will you respond to the evidence? What will you choose? What adventure will you choose? How will you respond to the evidence? Will you seek a risen Jesus or let's get out of here? Let's flee you are left to complete this story in a sense. The choice is up to you. Jesus did say, however, there would be two different endings. So with so much on the line, let's also consider together now the evidence. It's such a big decision. The most important decision you'll make in your life is to answer that question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because if so, that changes everything. So much on the let's, let's consider together the evidence for a big and resurrected Jesus. What do we see here just in this passage? Number one, we see there is no body. There's no body. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. The most serious and repeated accusation made against Jesus at his two trials and then on the cross was what? Do you remember? What was he technically condemned for? Tearing down a temple and then in three days raising up a temple that was not made by human hands. You can read it again. Go back and read if you haven't. If you didn't listen to the messages, Mark 14 and 15. It's all there. Every chief priest, every scribe, every Pharisee, every Sadducee, every religious leader in Judea would have done everything to make sure that Jesus' body, if it disappeared, would have been produced and paraded for all to see. For people to see, look, this is what really happened. Bribes would have been passed along. Exhaustive investigations would have been conducted. Yet there is no recording in either biblical or secular history other than Jesus just disappeared. The most logical conclusion based on all the evidence is there's just no body at the tomb. There's no body to be found. Second piece of evidence is that it wasn't the wrong tomb, which is what some people say. There are a lot of tombs in the sides of cliffs and caves there in Judea. Maybe the women, in their grief and their sadness, just got the wrong tomb. That's why Mark wisely chooses to tell us in verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph, who's, by the way, the same mother of James, brothers, both of Jesus. This is Jesus' mom. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Mark makes a point, goes out of his way to tell us, they saw exactly the tomb, they saw where he was laid, they witnessed it. The An angel then says to them as a confirmation in verse 6, see the place where they laid him, right? It wasn't the wrong tomb. Third piece of evidence. The Roman guards that the women encountered would never have willingly let anyone come out of the tomb or go into it. No one coming out, no one going in. Roman soldiers would never have let that happen. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, starting in verse 62, read this with me if you would. It's going to be up on the screen. The next day, that is the day after preparation, and we're now on Saturday here, the chief priests, the Pharisees gathered before the governor, Pilate, And said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive. Again, here it is again. After three days, I will rise. Therefore, order that the tomb be made secure until the third day. lest his disciples go. Steal him away and tell the people, look, he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate, who clearly by this point is just like, whatever. (laughs) Said to them, here, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went, made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. In front of the tomb was rolled a two-ton disc-shaped stone that was rolled by way of levers. Okay? So difficult to move. One writer on Roman military history said that the fear of punishment for these guards produced, quote, Flawless attention to duty, especially in the night watches, lest any shenanigans happen. If the Roman seal on a tomb was found broken, the most likely punishment for guards? Upside-down crucifixion. Taking your body, putting your head on the ground, and dying the worst, most shameful death possible. Why would these guards let anyone? These big, strong, trained military men who could kill people like that. You think some disciples got by them? You think these women opened the tomb? In fact, when the women arrive, they find the stone rolled away. And the guards, they're neither concocting a plan to escape, nor are they running. Matthew 28, verse 4. For fear of the angel, the guards trembled and looked like dead men, became like dead men. In other words, looked like people who had seen a ghost. They Hadn't seen a ghost. Saw an angel. Consider the evidence. Weigh it, friends. What's the most likely conclusion of what happened to the body of Jesus Christ? But consider also, lastly, the benefits to trusting that Jesus rose from the dead and thereby has defeated Death. Consider the great benefits. It's one thing if it's true. It's another if it radically changes your life and destiny forever. Right? The resurrection, firstly, brings restoration. Brings restoration. Verse 7, but go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you. It's a subtle thing here, but Mark does this all the time. He's tricky like that. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you. It's a little nod by Mark that he's going to do something for Peter especially. You see, at at Jesus' darkest hour, bystanders once and the same teenage girl twice asked Peter, hey, did you know this Galilean? Did you know this Jesus? A teenage girl. God bless you if you're a teenage girl this morning. If you're a grown man who's followed Jesus for three years, Hopefully he'd have the guts to say something different. Instead, three times he denies knowing Jesus. The final time swearing by the name of God and invoking a curse on himself. Peter, no doubt, heard Jesus' promises throughout his ministry of forgiving the sinner. No doubt. But there was no coming back from this kind of betrayal, this systematic, denying Swearing by the name of God, invoking a curse, kind of, I don't know this man. There's no coming back from that unless God brings the dead back to life. Then the promise of forgiveness, not just grounded in hope, but reality. There's a God who can forgive, who can bring dead things and people and hearts back to life. Years ago, Katie told me one morning she was depressed. She told me she didn't want to be around our child. This was years ago. and asked if I would stay home with her. She asked me this repeatedly. She didn't know at the time she had celiac disease, and she was daily poisoning herself as she uh, digested gluten. Still, she asked, and she asked, and each time she said, please stay, I just kept walking out that door. In the name of work, in the name of responsibility, in the name of ministry. I was a pastor at the time. I just kept walking out that door. I felt guilty about it. Friends, that, that, that betrayal, not only a betrayal of Katie, but of God who commanded me to love her like Christ loved the church. I think Jesus would have left her. For me, there was no coming back from that. There's no coming back from that unless God brings the dead back to life. And I'm just being real with you guys. Because I think all of us carry around with us uh, some kind of betrayal in our lives. We're willing to let, maybe God will forgive some sins, but some of us carry around this betrayal. You know of what I speak. Just deepen your heart towards someone else, thereby towards God himself. There's no coming back from it. You know it. Unless God brings the dead back to life. The way I imagine the angel intends the women carrying out this command to go and tell the disciples that I'm alive, I've risen, I'm going ahead of them to Galilee. Is First, they they got to the group and they would announce to the group. And then Peter, who's probably in a separate room, maybe outside, Sulking, feeling like he doesn't even belong with the other disciples. One of the Marys or Salome goes to Peter and said, Peter, he asked for you by name. He asked for you by name. Can you imagine what Peter would have sensed? Me? I thought I'd be dead to him. No. You can be alive because Jesus is alive. The resurrection, for instance, means restoration. The resurrection, the risen Jesus also doesn't leave us, but leads us. The second benefit, the resurrection is the risen Jesus doesn't leave us, but leads us. Verse 7, he is going before you to Galilee. The verb translated, he is going before you, isn't just, yeah, he left a little early. He packed up the vehicle, packed up the donkey, went ahead of you to Galilee. You know, if you, you can really catch up with him if you hurry. It's not that kind of idea. Proago used here, carries the sense of leading troops forward, of a commander making an advance with his troops following him. That's the idea. He is going before you. He is leading you. People often complain that they can't see God. That God's invisible. I know I've complained that before. Wish I could just see him. Wish he'd just show himself. But why why didn't Jesus just stay so we could all know him, so we could all see him? You ever kind of wondered that? Or why didn't he come now and stay? Because Jesus died in our place and rose from death, so we might never have to die, he leads all of his people all of the time in every place through the Holy Spirit. Here's what I mean. If Jesus was still on the earth in the flesh, he couldn't hear your Aunt Margaret in London and still be there for you. If Jesus was still here in the flesh... He wouldn't be able to show up for the Sunday worship service at your old church in Toronto and still show up here with power and glory. He could show up for very few of those, you know, bathroom stall prayers, right? Those prayers you pray, you're like, man, God, I just need help. When you're in the restroom, especially the women's restroom, that'd be very awkward for Jesus to walk in there. Jesus can be everywhere, intimate places, hard places, places you don't talk to anyone else. Why? Because he's risen from death. He's always hearing. He's always leading. He's always answering. He's always providing. So his all-the-time-everywhere plan advances you, his troops, and advances his mission forward. That's good news. Thirdly, a third benefit of the resurrection, those who trust will see the risen Jesus face-to-face. It's a small little nugget here in these verses, but a great one. Verse 7, look at that. There... You will see him just as he told you. That's a promise for us too, friends. Early evening on Friday, I'd see my eight-year-old son, Gage, out with me paddleboarding. He just kind of sat on the front while I taxied him around. He said, Dad, just kind of out of nowhere, Dad, I hope Jesus returns. I hope Jesus comes back in our generation. By the way, he talks like that. And he like talks up here without sounding pretentious. I don't know how he does it. I sound pretentious. But I hope Jesus comes back in our generation. I said, man, why, buddy? Honestly, Dad, yeah, I just want to see him. I just want to see him. I was like, oh, man, yeah. Yeah, it Was all I can muster. He said what well, we all want at our deepest core, right, to see one who loves past our betrayal, restores us to life, and leads us advancing us faithfully till the end. The Apostle John later goes on to say, when we do see him, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When we're raised from death and we see him, we too will receive this glorious resurrection body one day like his. Weighing the evidence, considering the benefits, Mark has laid the decision, friends, at your feet. Your feet. You're here to complete the story. In, this 2000, in her 2009 book, Unthinkable, this reporter all right, named Amanda Ripley, she investigated why some people survive disasters and some others don't. It's an interesting kind of book, I think. Why do some people survive and others don't? After examining fires, floods, hurricanes, airplane crashes, she interviewed dozens of survivors. She found three phases on the journey from danger to safety. First of all, there's denial. Then there's deliberation. Finally, what she calls the decisive moment. Denial, deliberation, decisive moment. And unfortunately, most don't make it to the final phase, the decisive moment. They don't make a decision to act. But as an example of that stage, Ripley tells the story of a guy named Paul Heck. On March 27, 1977, 65-year-old Mr. Heck, his wife... We're on a pan-am flight. By the way, I always feel like it's a pan-am flight, if you know that generation, but another story. Pan-am flight, 747, awaiting takeoff, when an incoming plane sort of hurtled through the fog, 160 miles per hour, slammed into Hex plane. And the collision sheared off the top of the 747, set the plane on fire. Most of the 396 passengers froze to death. Even Heck's wife, Floyd, who later reported that her mind just went blank because she was like a zombie, not knowing what to do, what to decide. But Paul Heck went into action mode. He unbuckled his seatbelt, grabbed his wife's hand, said, follow me, and he led her through this hole on the left side of the aircraft. In an interview after the disaster, Mr. Heck noted how most people just sat in their seats acting like everything was fine, after colliding with another plane and seeing the cabin just fill with smoke. But heck, see, he also noted, before takeoff, he studied the 747 safety diagram. So when the crisis came, he knew this was his de- decisive moment. He was preparing to make a decision, and he headed for the only exit available for him. Friends, you have collided with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's a big moment and a heavy story. You've been prepared with all the necessary evidence to make a decision, this decisive moment. The Savior will one day return again on stage, but by that time, it'll be too late to choose sides. It will be time to discover which side you have really chosen, whether you know it or not. Now, today, this moment is your chance to choose wisely. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful for this gospel, the gospel of Mark. That's been an amazing journey to just look at your life. Look at how you love people, how you cared for people, how you healed people who were humble, who know they needed help. How you built a community to foreshadow the church. How you were patient with people who failed how you waited on those closest with you, even though it was so obvious, you waited on them to make a decision that you were the Christ, the Son of the living God. You predicted your death and resurrection. And that's how you're going to save all who would trust in you. And we read this morning, he is risen. He is not here. The last piece of evidence. Father, to pray this morning, considering the evidence, that we would make this our decisive moment. We have collided. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, even Christmas Day, celebrating baby Jesus. Help us choose you. Open our eyes to see that you have risen. You have risen indeed. We ask this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.